All right. Yeah, I specifically asked for not that. Uh, very specifically, Drew said, uh, you want an introduction? I said, please, no. I don't, I don't want to be talked about. And as the many, the many members of our staff are prone to do, they did it anyways because they love encouraging, and that's wonderful. So, uh, well, good morning. My name is Trevor. I am the worship director. Uh, so surprise. Um, he can read. This is real. Uh, not just music, but words. As you can see, we have the laptop set up. Wesley last week talked about the iPad. I feel like the further you get away from being the preaching pastor, the larger the setup gets. Uh, so if we go any further than me, a guy will have a desktop up here. He'll be sitting behind it like in an office chair. Like he'll still be like, oh, hey, guys. Um, so there we got our jokes out of the way uh, to be relatable. That's good. All right. So um, yes, yes. Uh, got to be relatable. So our scripture this morning is uh, 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 19. It changes it up a little bit. I'm uh, going to go a little bit long on that with a smaller section in Psalm 132, 3 through 5. That's where we're going to be landing and spending most of our time. For context's sake, I'm going to read 2 Samuel 6 now, and I'm going to mess up some names. Uh, so David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, mistake, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Io, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Io went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand on the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Mistake. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God was there. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark key of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Mishal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And we're almost done. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. That is the largest section of scripture for the day, so we are done with that. All right, 
So we're going to dive in and take a look at what David's got going on. After a long journey, he finally brings the ark into his city, and there's a lot of rejoicing, right? And there should be. Uh, The journey was full of danger and peril, and a lot of it was self-inflicted, which sounds familiar to me. A lot of my own journey is self-inflicted wounds. Uh, That's David a lot of times. Uh, God gave very exact rules on transporting the ark. Uh, You're supposed to put staffs or staves, which I'm saying staffs, uh, into the four corners, carry it on your shoulders. David and his guys, they put it on a cart. They drug it across the desert. Naturally, the oxen trip. Uzzah grabs it. Uzzah dies. That's no good. Uh, The reason for that, which I feel like is probably key, is that Uzzah was a Levite, and only priests were allowed to touch the ark. This is a very serious thing. So David knew that he had incurred God's wrath through disobedience, which led David to be too scared to bring it into the city, so he left it with Obed-Edom. I do want to take a moment externally from the sermon and say that is crazy. Uh, He had the ark. It's a very important thing. has a presence of the Lord on it. His, his boy Uzzah dies, touching it, scares David. David leaves it at his friend's house. That, to me, just doesn't make sense. Like, like, oh, man, this is really bad. Hey, will you hold this for me for just a little while because it killed someone? Oh, yeah. Um, now, a key thing here, right, is Obed-Edom, uh, him and his family, they bring the ark in with joyous hearts. Uh, they, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm assuming that David told them what happened. David is not always a great dude, but I do feel like in this case, surely he was like, hey, this is the Ark of the Lord. It's very important. It did kill a guy. Would you mind holding on to it? Obed says, yeah, of course. So after the time of judgment had passed, David's like, oh man, this blessed the household of Obed-Edom, which could be a separate sermon with the presence of the Lord blessing uh, this family. And he comes and gets it, makes sacrifices, burnt offerings, shows his repentance, brings it back into the city. So that's kind of the background of where we're going to be living with David. Now to kind of speak to David's heart in this moment, we're going to go to Psalms 132, 3 through 5. It says this, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. For David, the worship of the Lord was a serious thing. It meant literally everything to him. In the Psalms, it literally says, this man is not going to go to sleep until he finds a place for the Lord. I will oversleep and miss getting to band practice on time. Like, that is a real thing. So David takes this worship very serious. Today, we're going to be living around the idea of worship, of course, right? That's what I do. So why else would I be up here? I did ask next time for, like, Deuteronomy or something to really show my range. Uh, But for today, it's going to be worship. Uh, So... Uh, let's go ahead and get a definition for what exactly worship is, all right? Oftentimes, in the context of the Psalms and even the church today, worship includes singing, all right? I would not be doing a good job of stewarding my role here if I didn't tell you all that it's not just singing, all right? We're going to talk about singing again. That's my job. Uh, but having been the dude that does music for about 17 years now, Uh, If I'm asked to speak, it's usually on worship. Uh, So I've read and heard a lot of books and quotes and kind of live in that, uh, which I guess we would hope so, right? Um, For this particular sermon, I found a quote by J.I. Packer, uh, who last hundred years has been like the, just the dude of theology, like one of them, like just a real, a real dude, um, which is a good thing, uh, of theology. And so I think it captures really well the definition of what I'm going to communicate. It is a little long, though. 
Uh, so J.I. Packer says this, worship in the Bible is the due response of rational creatures to the self-revelation of their creator. It is an honoring and glorifying of God by gratefully offering back to him all the good gifts and all the knowledge of his greatness and graciousness that he has given. It involves praising him for what he is, thanking him for what he has done, desiring him to get himself more glory by further acts of mercy, judgment, and power, and trusting him with our concern for our own and others' future well-being. Moods of awestruck wonder and grateful celebration are all part of it. David danced with passionate zeal before the Lord when he brought up the ark to Jerusalem, and he sat in humble amazement before the Lord when he was promised a dynasty, and his worship evidently pleased God on both occasions. That's 2 Samuel 6 through 14 through 16, and then 7, 18. Learning from God is worship too. That's key. We forget about that piece, right? Learning from God is worship too. Attention to his word of instruction honors him. Inattention is an insult. Acceptable worship requires clean hands and a pure heart, and a willingness to express one's devotion in works of service as well in, as in words of adoration. And we're almost done with this one too, and then we'll get back at it. The basis of worship is the covenant relationship whereby God has bound himself to those whom he has saved and claimed. This was true of Old Testament worship as it is now of Christian worship. The spirit of covenant worship, as the Old Testament models it, is a blend of awe and joy at the privilege of drawing near to the mighty creator with a radical self-humbling, an honest confession of sin, folly, and need. Since God is holy and we humans are obviously faulty, it must ever be so in this world. As worship will be central in the life of heaven, so it must be central in the life of the church on earth. And it should be already the main activity, both private and corporate in each believer's life. So we've established a very broad definition uh, a working idea of what worship is. Let's work through how it relates to us practically. Uh, so we're going to go through three kind of questions, going to be weaving in and out of these ideas uh, this morning. What is unhealthy worship? What actions might help us to grow into a life of healthy worship? And what does a life of healthy worship look like? And again, we're going to be weaving through those. So what can unhealthy worship look like? Despite how we often feel, it's not singing the wrong note. Uh, it's not, it's not, it's not. So like for you guys who come every morning and you're like, I don't want to sing with Trevor. I don't sing good. I don't sing good half the time. So like, we're fine. Like, it's not a wrong note. It's not a misspoken word. Um, although I've had some extremely uh, humorous instances of saying the wrong words in worship. Uh, my favorite one is uh, how he loves. I will sometimes, even now after 17 years, instead of he is jealous for me, I will always drop a he is jealous of me, which is <laughs> not... <laughs> Where you want to go, it is not true. Um, yeah, we don't want to do that. So uh, in Isaiah 1, 12 through 1, 17, we can see God speaking through the prophet saying something drastic. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And this is God speaking through the prophet here. Some strong language. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Strong language. Uh, 
Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. God is legitimately angry with his people here for their festivals, gatherings, and offerings because they're sinful, they're idolatrous, lifeless, passionless, heartless, and therefore, ultimately, they're meaningless. They're, and they're, these, these guys are doing a lot more than we do on a Sunday morning. Like They are making offerings, sacrifices, they're putting on whole festivals, and God's like, don't want it, don't want it. When we approach worship, we should have hearts that are set aflame by the love of God through Christ. We've received a great mercy, guys, and so for us to have dead and dark and sinful hearts when we come, that's a problem. So we can safely say that dispassionate hearts towards the wonderful works of God as we live out our lives in worship would count as unhealthy worship, also could count as just unhealthy in general. I do want to take a moment to stand up for everyone here. Um, I'll stand up, y'all don't have to, uh, who aren't hand-raising and clapping during a Sunday morning service, all right? When we're talking about our heart for worship, we're talking about passion, that doesn't necessarily mean, although it could, there's some kind of kinesthetic outpouring. You don't have to jump up and just your fist punch in the air because, you know, we dropped a minor chord on the bridge, you know? Like, you don't have to do that. Like, it's not, it's not a thing. Now, certainly, there are times when even the most stoic of us are moved to having an outward emotional response. But I am speaking to the heart right now. And as I ask myself often, ask yourself, if you're not moved by the mercy and compassion of our Lord to us, why not? Could it be idolatry? Could it be what your heart is focused on? Matthew 15, 8 through 9 also addresses this in a very similar vein. Jesus says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Their worship is in vain. Again, that's crazy. Like, we think we just come, we're under the new covenant, we get to come in, Christ has intercessed for us, we're good, we just come in here and sing, right? Their worship was in vain, is what Jesus said. We can see the issue is with the heart. So family, friends, teammates, squad, uh, the issue is the heart. It's what causes unhealthy worship. If our friends, if our lives are to be, as Romans 12 talks about, living sacrifices for spiritual worship, and our hearts are far from loving and caring about God and the things that he loves and cares about, how are we living in any real way as men and women after his heart? Now, it's tempting to hear that and maybe feel like there is something uniquely wrong with you. Maybe you are the only person here today that is struggling or comes to church and feels dead. You're not, uh, because we're all sinful and we have this problem, right? Uh, All of our hearts are bundles of just mess. We make so many mistakes. We mess up so much. Uh, You're just a person. So I don't want you to beat yourself up. I want you to start looking inward and searching, all right? David, in an act of desire to worship the Lord, we've established David ultimately was trying his best to worship God, right? He messed up, very thematic, on brand, some might say, for David. And his mistake took the life of Uzzah. For most of us, we have to overcome far less than, uh, than accidental manslaughter, right? Like we don't have to overcome that when we come to worship. Uh, and that's before we factor in that Christ has come to give us a new covenant and to remove the constraints of Old Testament worship sacrifice and offerings and things of that nature. There's a reason why the hymn says for all of us out that are feeling like, man, I am broken, this is me. The hymn says prone to wander, right? 
prone to leave the God I love. Again, we're sinners. We're born into it. We're covered by it. But this is why it's so key for us as Christians to steward our hearts well, what we take in, what we read, what we listen to, to maintain fellowship with our Christian brothers and sisters. Coming to church is not just, I'm going to come, check off the box, I'm going to go home. Having fellowship with each other is one of the main ways we can steward our hearts well because we're being pulled along with our brothers and sisters on this race, right? To soak in the gospel, not just on Sundays, but in our day-to-day lives. Fill your time with it. Meditate on it. When you look at the trees in a summer storm, like that is not the gospel. It's not saving, but it is an act of God. God created this. He put those trees there. You can worship in that moment what our creator has done, right? When your kids are laughing, Honestly, I find the love of God most evident when my kids are cracking up because that is a grace to me. Um, Y'all don't know this. I grew up in a very broken home, uh, and so having this holistic family and getting to see my kids raised happy and healthy, God is incredible, right? Um, And so, you know, when when my spouse smiles, when Mindy smiles, I'm like, I don't deserve that, you know? And so we have these moments that God has given to us that we can then take this, our hearts say, oh man, I love this thing. Thank you, God. And so, when you're doing hobbies, when Ernie's playing golf, right? Um, My boy's playing golf. He's probably playing golf today at some point, I feel confident. Maybe not. Hey, Ernie. Um, (laughs) So, if if he is, though, um, that is a time to appreciate what God has done, right? When you're hiking, when you're playing, uh, when you're playing music, when you're playing basketball, whatever it is, you can be thankful for what God's done. So, about our hearts for the gospel, J.C. Ryle says this. Tell the young, tell the poor, tell the aged, tell the ignorant, tell the sick, the dying, tell them all about Christ. Tell them of his power and tell them of his love. Tell them of his doings and tell them of his feelings. Tell them what he has done for the chief of sinners. That would be us. Tell them what he is willing to do until the last day of time. Tell it to them over and over and over again. Never be tired of speaking of Christ. Say to them broadly and fully, freely and unconditionally, unreservedly and undoubtingly, come unto Christ as a penitent thief did. Come unto Christ and you shall be saved. Now, JC, my my guy, uh, he's talking about the export of our hearts, that we are to be fishers of men. We are to share the gospel and help lead people to Christ. All that is real, but what if we took that quote and we turned it inward? What if we preached these very things to our own hearts continuously, daily? Our hearts need the gospel, guys. Tell yourselves these things. Set your heart on fire with the truth of the absolutely wild mercy and grace that we've been given. Use that to fuel your heart and live a life of worship. Live a life of praise and celebration for what you have received, and not only that, but what you will receive. Glory is coming. We're going to spend eternity with Jesus. If you're a saved person this morning, if you're a believer, that is the truth. That is what's happening. And we don't say that enough. Our future is with Jesus. And we have to let that truth drive our passions for God here in the now, right? And so, it's a good segue kind of into our second idea or theme. What can help us grow into a life of healthy, appropriate, and deserved worship of God? So, circling back to the Packer quote from earlier, that's J.I. Packer, um, not Hewlett, It is an honoring and glorifying of God by gratefully offering back to him all the good gifts and all the knowledge of his greatness and graciousness that he has given. It involves praising him for what he is, 
thanking him for what he has done, desiring him to get himself more glory by further acts of mercy, judgment, and power, and trusting him with our concern for our own and others' future well-being. That is very solid, and frankly, feel like, and I wrote this down, I boxed myself in by using the J.F. Hacker quote because can't really out-preach J.F. Hacker. Uh, very limited guy up here. So I will say this. Throughout my study, um, which feels very educated to say, yeah, my study of this, um, I was reading about the journey of David and bringing the ark back and how it was punctuated with praise and prayer. When he gets the ark from Obed's house, uh, he takes six steps with it. He offers up sacrifices and prayers, and then he dances with vigor and praises God for what he knows uh, will be good favor. David has learned this. He knows who God is and what God is about. Our God's a good father. He wants to give us good things. Prayers and praise, lives marked by those two things, are lives marked by God. So are your lives marked by prayers and praise? Practically, what can that look like? We unpacked a few of those ideas earlier. Uh, trees, children, reading and praying. Uh, and I think that for me, and maybe this is true for some of you guys, an impulse is that when I think about a life of prayer and praise and trying to really soak my heart in the gospel, uh, the first thing is I got to get up at 4.30. And some of y'all don't know me. I, that is not my jam. The closer to noon it gets, the better I am about waking up. Uh, I am a, I'm a night owl all the way through. Uh, so you got to get up at 4.30 in the morning. Got to have some coffee. We all love the coffee. I love the coffee. Have your devotional time. Spend an hour in prayer. Knock it out. If that is you this morning, see me afterwards. Give me tips. That is not me, okay? I wish it was me. That is not me. I've tried and tried and tried and tried and tried and tried and tried. I had a guy one time be like, well, it's the first fruits of your, of your day. And I'm like, ah, yeah, but I can't do it. I just cannot. Um, you know, it's a lot of us, our lives are on a knife's edge, right? From completely giving out. You're working. You're taking care of kids. You're doing so much because our society puts so much on us, uh, much less adding something that because of our hearts and our sinful nature, we almost feel as performative or legalistic. Like, I don't, I want to do this, but like, ah, if I read about it, ah, ah. Like, we just kind of complain about it ultimately, and then we feel bad about it, and then we don't do it, and then we do do it with bad hearts. It's just a mess. Um, or maybe you're like super well-intentioned, and this has been me occasionally, right? I, I go to sit down to pray or to read, and a child runs in and talks about Pokemon. So keynote about me, um, I have ADD, so when someone comes in and they bring up something, I'm gone. Like, it is over. Like, the doorbell's been ringing, and I'm working real hard to stay focused. Uh, we're good, though. But that happens, right? Um, or maybe an old friend calls, or for those of you guys who work constantly. I was in that vein a few years ago where work was a 24-7 endeavor. I sit down, boom, phone call, email, whatever. They'd never let you rest, um, which is why I love this church and why I love Ernie, because one of his big things is rest. Um, or maybe you fall asleep. That happens to me kind of regularly. Uh, I hate to admit it, but it's true. So it can make the process of practically living out a life of worship feel very daunting, right? It's almost like, almost scary in a way. Like, man, I can't climb this mountain. I can't be this guy or, or gal. I can't be after this the way that I need to. And then our mind always thinks about, well, so-and-so, this paragon, right? Well, they are always doing it. There's something wrong with me. That's not true. I'm here to tell you guys that. 
Like we're all unique. We all have our own struggles. God wired us, which I'm going to talk about later. He knows that I hear the doorbell and I'm like, oh, what's up? Like he knows that. Like he's not shocked by that. Um, so practically, right, what can we do? Because like a lot of times we show up on Sunday morning, we're exhausted. And we leave energized. We came here tired and ashamed. Like I haven't read this week. I haven't prayed this week. Um, and then we hit Wednesday. We were energized. Now we're empty again practically, and Wesley touched on this last week, and I loved it, gratitude, gratitude, right? Try this, and I do this, and I don't do it all the time, but I do do it sometimes, and I always feel better when I do. Say out loud a couple times a day, thank you to God. Take a moment, pray out loud, say it. When you have a good meal, when you see an old friend, when the sky is exceptionally blue, thank God for the gifts that he's given you that are just normal. We take these things for granted, but they're super special, guys, um, I think that having a heart posture of gratitude is probably one of the easiest gateways into worship, right? And so saying it out loud, because I'm sure some of you guys are like, this dude's lost his mind. He needs to sing again. I'm not going to sit there in my truck and be like, sky looks great today. Thanks, God. That's awesome. Saying it out loud is key, though, because you hear your own gratitude. It's out loud. And then your heart hears that. And you start to grow something. And it takes root in your heart and your mind. If we approach every part of our lives as thankful lovers of our king, then we will inevitably become cognizant, passionate, God-loving people, the kind of people who would theoretically not rest until we've honored God with our worship, like David in Psalm 132. That's what we're supposed to be. That is why we're here, hammer, meet, nail. We are supposed to worship. That's it. That's our purpose. We're supposed to glorify God, right? Glorify him forever. Chief and a man. Now, I don't want to move on, and I feel like I need to address this. Loving God and worshiping, worshiping him with our lives uh, does not mean that we're not going to be sad, hurt, confused, or angry. I feel like the American church, sometimes we zoom out on that. We just focus real in on, oh, you got to worship God with your lives. If things are bad. It's like, ah, I don't know. I don't know, right? In our passage this morning, when Uzzah struck down for touching the ark, which was a bad move, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah since 2 Samuel 6, 8. Could you imagine having been so angry at God that some dude is over here and he's writing it down and then it's in a book for the rest of all of creation, right? That's how mad David was. He was legitimately angry. Like, he's legit angry. He's like, oh, what are you doing? How would you, why would you kill God? Why would you kill Uzzah, God? What's going on? Like, God made us. God made David. God is the master of our hardwiring. He knows that we have emotions, and it is very unhealthy as worshipers to act like we don't, to button them down. Oh, man, can't do it. Can't cry. Can't be upset. Can't question God. Cannot do it. When bad things happen, it is okay to acknowledge them, guys. That is not counter-Christian. It is not counter-worship. For going to worship God with our whole lives, that means that we also need to give over our griefs, sorrows, hurts, and doubts. When I was a little bit younger, I was at a worship coaching events class uh, there was an older guy there very wise and he had done some songs and was talking through workshopping on how to be a worship leader and this guy about my age we were younger um, but much more bold than me obviously because I did not say a word uh, he was like a lot of the songs that you're talking about kind of depressing like and that one talks about doubt like there's doubt like we can't do that and the guy um and I, I still follow him on the Twitters uh, to this day. 
Uh, he said, having all these emotions aren't wrong or bad. So long, uh, you can doubt God, you can question God, you can be angry, you can be frustrated, so long as they lead you back to the throne, laying yourselves bare before the Lord and ultimately believing in his promises. That's what we're called to do. God knows that we're, he knows that we're stressed. He knows that we're upset, anxiety-ridden, right? My last three days have been very intense. Scott, you mentioned an attack, right? Oof, boy, both, both my oldest kids got COVID. I've been quarantining with the, with the six-year-old. We had a potty accident this morning at like five. It has been, oof, the worst. Um, and I've had some, some moments, I'm laying there like, God, why? I never preach. Could we just have had this week? please. And you know what? I felt better. God's a good father. He didn't abandon me that moment. Like, why are you asking this question, Trevor? I felt loved. I felt loved, right? That's what we're promised. Our God loves us. As Christians, we typically have one of two responses to sorrows and sufferings. We smile and move on like nothing happened because we're supposed to be happy, right? We're Christians. Why are you guys not smiling? Let's go. We're happy this morning, right? Or, or, and this is my bend, we hang our heads in very serious, oh, God is sovereign. We gotta be okay with it. God is sovereign. He's the master of everything and he's in control. We can't change what God's will is, right? We can have a response to it though. And God's a good father. I'm a dad. I've been a dad now for 14 years. And my kids, they don't always take advantage of it, but they know that if I'm like, hey, you can't go outside. You can't play on the switch. You can't go to your friend's house, whatever. They have full freedom to basically kind of talk back. Like, so long as they're not disrespectful, they can say, why I want to, here's why I want to, and I try my best to be a loving and good father and explain myself to them, and sometimes the answer is, I just don't think it's right right now, and sometimes I'm not happy, but I can love them in that moment and extend grace to them and teach them, and I think God is like that times like 900,000, um, or what is it, so will I, 100 billion times, uh, so now we've looked at unhealthy worship, we've looked at kind of healthy worship, uh, what can we expect the fruits of our lives to be? And we're getting towards the end, uh, Michael, so get your hands warm. Uh, if they are marked by an appropriate, loving, that's the thing. When you're the worship guy and you have to do the last song, you're back there like, what's happening? When's the end? Um, you're always looking like you're just ready at a moment's notice um, to spring into action when the prayer hits. Uh, so what are our lives going to be uh, if they're marked by appropriate, loving, adoring, and passionate worship of God? Now, what I'm about to talk about is not exhaustive, um, but it's some things we can consider uh, as checkpoints for ourselves to kind of think through as we journey on or sojourn. Hey, um, hey, got that in there, or sojourn, threw that in there. Um, so to start with, we should be satisfied. We should be content. We should prize our God who is for us, our Savior who lives, uh, lived here on earth with us and the spirit that dwells within us more than anything else. We should be content with what we have in Christ. Philippians 121, right? To live as Christ, to die as gain. A people who are satisfied with what has been done for them will be a people who are at peace with themselves and things that happen. Satisfied in this context does not mean lazy or slothful or that we quit on our journey of sanctification or we're just cool with whatever, we're not sharing the gospel. No, 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 no. We are satisfied with God, right? On the contrary to being slothful, we should be an ever-striving people pressing forward, to continue to be more and more like Christ. That's where our energy should be directed. We should be content. That's a wonderful posture. Now, 
What should become of the believer's mind who is focused on being an ardent worshiper of God? Romans 12, one through two says this, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I wanna draw your attention in verse two there, specifically the, the word renewal, renewal of your mind. Renewal might be better defined as a renovation, a renovation of your thinking, a reorienting of the mind that flows from a proper orientation of a heart that's truly focused on what matters, on the gospel, a heart that is trying to mimic the heart of Christ. When you have your heart focused on what is right and good, then your mind will follow. So I'd ask all of us, where do our hearts wander? Now, I said we're gonna talk about singing, and we're, we're really close. We got like a page and a half, maybe. Um, it's time. It's time to talk about singing. Uh, I feel like Ernie, a few months ago, did uh, the Tim McGraw song. I feel like I should sing um, as well. I'm not going to, but I feel like I should. feels good. feels right, but I'm going to deny this earthly pleasure at this time. Um, yes, please, please. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's pretty logical that an outpouring of a people who are absolutely in awe of what God has done for us through his plan of salvation would include singing, celebration, noise, right? Isaac Watts was a prolific hymn writer in the 1700s. He wrote some of my favorite hymns, personally. Uh, he was plagued with also pretty severe illnesses when he was young, and consequently, I'm just kind of giving you guys his resume, uh, he knew by 13, 13, uh, he knew Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and French uh, by 13 years old. By 13 years old, I had beaten Super Mario 64. That was my feather. That was my feather in the cap. I had like all 72 stars. It was a big deal. Uh, and that was back in the day. There was not really internet. There, you couldn't just get on there and find it. I worked for that, son. Um, so he would later write, Joy to the World, When I Survey the Wonderful Cross, and Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed, with about 700 other hymns. When I say prolific, I mean truly prolific. Might be the most prolific hymn writer in history, and he says this about singing. Let us remember that the very power of singing was given to human nature chiefly for this purpose, that our own warmest affections of soul might break out into natural or divine melody, and that the tongue of the worshiper might express his own heart. That the tongue of the worshiper might express his own heart. Even David understands this. In the middle of our Second Samuel entry, the the scroll there that we rolled out, all those verses, uh, 15 and 16, we see David bringing the ark back. He's shouting, sounds of horns, and then he's leaping and dancing with all of his might. Um, because I'm on a nice corny uh, joke roll, I don't think I've seen Seinfeld, but the Elaine Bennis dance, that's where my head went for the dancing with all his might. Uh, so there is a joyous outpouring that David and his people got it right, finally, right? The ark is finally returning to the city, and their joy and excitement is pouring out. Now, I'm not saying that we gotta come in here on Sunday morning and dance with all of our might. If anyone wants to, that's fine. Hit like this area of the stage if you're dancing with all your might because we've got the camera and then I can catch you guys and make a viral video later. If I put some ads on that thing, right, then we can, we can maybe afford uh, some, some nice stuff. Um, what I am saying is that the pathway of worship should go heart to mind, to like hands, feet, and mouth, not the disease, your actual hands, feet, and mouth. Um, when we have this glorious opportunity to come on a Sunday morning, and it truly is a glory, I, I know we're tired, the week is long. This is special, guys. And Drew talks about this a lot. Like, 
You go do some mission work. This ain't happening in other places. You don't get to just go to church, right? This is special. Um, we can come and experience this treasure of grace. We should not come as dispassionate hearers who are inactive and here to check off a box, right? We should come as a people who remember the work of Christ in their lives, the tapestry of grace that our God has woven for us, the security of the Holy Spirit who dwells in our hearts. We should be singing, loving, longing, celebrating, mourning. We should be active participants in this means of grace that we've been given. We should be focused on the sermon, even mine, singing our hearts out, enjoying our lives. God has given us life. Life is a special thing. You guys have a gift. I have a gift. We're drawing breath right now. So who will you be? What affections are going to rule over your heart? What are you going to worship? Who are you going to worship? My prayer for us is that we will be healthy Christians for the healthy worship of our God. Last little quote that I added on at about 9.45 this morning. Um, Saw this. Mr. Rogers, who I love, and I say that unironically, that was a very smart dude, um, says this. It's really easy to fall into the trap of believing that what we do is more important than what we are. Of course, it's the opposite that's true. What we are ultimately determines what we do. Church, we are Christians. What do we do? We worship. When we come in here on a Sunday morning, this is our call. This is our purpose. You're never going to be more purpose-filled, not at work, not as a parent, not as a spouse, than when you're in the assembled gathering of believers, bearing your soul before the Lord, singing out prayer, sorrow, praise, frustration, dealing with things, being happy. This is it. And this is an echo of future grace. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing, guys. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much that you've given us this means of grace, that you've given us the gathering of believers, that we can come here and worship you. Lord, help us to be healthy worshipers. God, this morning I ask that you will move our hearts and compel us to love you more, to love you in a more deep way, God. God, if we are... You are a believer out there this morning, God. I ask that you will help. Help us to, to tender our hearts, to soften the soil so that we can, we can worship you the way you deserve, Lord. Because you are worthy. You are glorious. You are worth everything. Help us to love you the way that we should. God, we thank you that we are here. We thank you for our lives. Our very existence is a miracle, Lord, and we thank you for that. Be with us. Help us to love you in Christ's name. Amen.